You know, I had, like, no memory of this episode, really. Like, none. Um, so this was effectively watching a new episode for me. Which is interesting, because this is the worst episode. No, no, I'm sorry. I hate to meme. I liked this one a lot. This is actually probably my second favorite episode so far. Um, you know, it's it's good. I have to admit a lot of that is probably because, and I'm going to horribly mispronounce this, Fionnul Flanagan. Fionnul? Fionnul? I don't know how to pronounce her name, but I feel so bad because I've talked about her before. She actually was actually... I covered these kind of separately because I did DS9 and TNG side by side, but she was actually pulled into Star Trek at basically the same time for the early DS9 episode Dax and the late TNG episode Inheritance. Uh, she played Anina Tandro over in Dax and Juliana Tyner, a.k.a. Data's mother. She's a good actress. I could absolutely see her in, and kind of wish we saw more of her. One of the things that I heard, and this is one of those unsubstantiated things because this is Enterprise and we just don't have a lot of info on the behind the scenes. Like, seriously, half my behind the scenes info has actually been coming from this. There's little, like, featurettes that come in and there's little interviews and stuff like that. And I go like, oh, okay. And that's where half of this info is coming from, I swear. Um, funnily enough, I, did, I wasn't actually aware of that at first because, you know, I was just going through the episodes. And then I got to, oh, which was it here? I got to the end of disc one, which is about uh, Strange New World, and I just hit stop, of course. And then I moved on to the next disc to get to the next thing, and I'm checking Memory Alpha, one of my main sources, and it's like, hey, by the way, did you know that this, you know, it, it, it cites, it cites its source, and it said, hey, it's from uh, the In Conversation with Rick Berman and Vernon Braga, from Season 1 disc, and I'm like, wait, what? So I've been checking those a little bit more now. Unfortunately, it's still not a lot. All of that's a roundabout way of saying there's going to be a lot of speculation here and a lot less factoid, and even the facts I tend to have are who knows. But supposedly, since this is the era post-DS9 and, you know, post-Voyager, uh, when feedback from fans was at an unprecedented level at that point in television history. I've talked before about how, for example, Ronald D. Moore went out of his way to regularly peruse AOL chats and to interact with fans on the Internet. So they were getting feedback kind of live. Now, they'd already cast and they'd already broken and they'd already worked on it, but by the point at which this episode was actually being put into filming they were already, supposedly, getting feedback on some of the earliest episodes. And as a result of that, people were very, very against the way the Vulcans were portrayed. I bring all this up because it has been posited that Valar was told to portray someone more diplomatically, more politely, more amiably than she otherwise would. And I believe that firmly. Because if you look at the way the character is written, She's a typical Vulcan, a typical Enterprise Vulcan in many ways. She doesn't really come across as someone who is, a, well, a decent diplomat, to put it bluntly. She comes across as a typical Vulcan, which is the opposite of diplomatic, to be blunt about it. And they had been shown in a negative light the whole show, with good reason. So I think this is why I could say this is something that was done, because by this point, the, the, the script was well in, well past the point of actually editing it, but what they can do is reach out to the actress and say, hey, 
tone it down a bit because presentation can change a lot about lines on a page, right? So, <clears throat> this then leads to the episode proper. First, we have the dumbest scene in the episode, the only scene that actually bothers me, where uh, T'Pol is like, hey, I believe you two haven't had a lot of sexual activity lately. Maybe you should look into that. Tee hee hee. Yeah, okay, episode, whatever. But then we find out that there's this place nearby called Ryza. This is interesting, because I know there's a Ryzen episode, and I know it's not this one. And the fact that they're mentioning it here means this is effectively going to be a background element. I wonder if it's going to come up in the next episode. Really, I do. Because they're on their way to Ryza, and then the events of this episode get in the way. And if this is a continuing thing, I'm kind of in favor of that. I am, of course, a huge fan of string continuity. One, one large major story that is told across multiple episodes, right? goes from one thing to the next thing to the next thing immediately. But story arcs and sub-story arcs and mini-story arcs that happen throughout a series are something I'm also hugely in favor of. It doesn't need to be the big focus of the episode, but having something in the background as the episodes progress and develops... That I'm all in favor of. Deep Space Nine kind of played with that. Voyager actually played with that, too. And so the this is kind of how the Temporal Cold War has been approached in several ways. But in short, I like this general idea, and I hope this is kind of a thing. I do know with total certainty that in the future there's a, a Romulan mine thing that's going to come up. And I know that's going to form a small sub-arc. And I know that in the Zindi arc there are several sub-arcs as well. So I'm kind of in favor of that. <clears throat> Anyways, Tucker shows up in his Hawaiian shirt. Some of you may remember I used to have my own Hawaiian shirt. I was actually very fond of it. Unfortunately, it just kind of fell apart. I, I just wore it too much and washed it too much, and it eventually the thread started coming loose, and I had to toss it. It became scrap, uh, scrap material, which sucks. But I bring this up because I really wish we saw more of these guys not in uniform. I know I've been saying that since literally the first episode, but one of the things I really like about Enterprise is it being that kind of bridge in between modern day and TOS. And I think more people being in just everyday clothes helps with that. I will also point out that it sounds like I'm saying this as if they're not doing this, but they have been. Semi-regularly, there have been elements of them just being in t-shirts or regular coats or pajamas is in this one, for example. And I like that a lot, and I hope that that continues to be a trend, because it really does help ground things. So T'Pol goes way over the protocols for Valar, and anybody can tell that she's going above and beyond. Even her normal <clears throat> stick-up bum syndrome is uh, being dialed up to 11 for this particular incident. And it almost makes you wonder why. We do find out why later on, but it's a nice little bit of touch, because... It's hard to portray someone who is trying very hard to do the best they can without letting it show, while at the same time trying to portray someone who is simply doing the best they can without... I'm saying this so wrong, because the point is you're portraying someone who is very contained, but they're really eager, they want to do the best they can, but they can't let that show. And that's on top of portraying someone who doesn't show regularly. Basically, what you have to do is you have to move the meter of your performance just one little tiny tidbit forward. And that's hard to do. Once again, credit to Jolene Blaylock for managing this nice little portrayal. She's quickly becoming one of my favorite Vulcan actors uh, up there with um, 
uh, Tim Russ, who played Tuvok, and of course uh, Mark Leonard, who played Sarek, who are my two favorite Vulcans up till now. Spock doesn't count. He's half Vulcan. So she comes on board, and she offers to shake hands. I like this for two reasons. First of all, she's just a little awkward about it. Did you catch that? She she doesn't, you know, hey, you know, did you kind of there's there's a whole way people shake hands and it's it's hard to explain if you haven't seen it, but there's kind of a casualness to it unless you're being very formal, in which case there's a specific method and she does neither. Instead, she holds out her arm at a kind of an odd angle and holds her hand out as if waiting for something. And it's just it's just sort of awkward as if she's not used to the movement, which she isn't, of course. She is, literally, holding out a hand. She's, she's, she's trying to be diplomatic. So I love that little portrayal. I love this actress so much. Oh my gosh, I, I really wish we saw more of Valar, just so we could see more of her. I'm not even joking. But little touches like that really add to her performance, and I'm going to be gushing about several of those this episode. But the other thing I like it is, you know that things are bad when a Vulcan trying to be diplomatic and polite is considered unusual. This is also not the first time they've done this on Enterprise. I haven't decided if I like that yet. To go back to what I mentioned earlier, a lot of fans were very upset at how Vulcans were being portrayed as this show was going live. Like I said, bad feedback. And that was back before the internet was as interconnected as it is now. What I mean by that is it's easy to dismiss the noise when it's noise, but the peop- it took time and effort to reach out and give feedback back then, just less than it used to, and the people were still doing so and still expressing their distaste, which means I think we can fairly say there were a decent amount of you know Star Trek fans who were upset about this, as as opposed to just a I can't you know what I'm talking about right? There's a difference between a legitimate complaint and someone who is just rabble rousing. I'd like to think this is in the category of legitimate complaint. We'll see what I think of that long term because it's been. 19 years since this show has come out. We've had a lot of time to analyze and discuss, and this is me going through binging and analyzing as I go. And I get the overall idea. Vulcans are being shown in a negative light. I think on purpose. I'm not quite willing to give the creators credit on that, and as I've talked about before, they will then try to have an entire story arc devoted towards fixing this in Season 4. But... The fact of the matter is, I feel like this is being done to good effect. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Anyways, so, she attempts to be humorous. Again, a diplomatic thing. She's still very Vulcan. She does an excellent portrayal of a Vulcan in this episode. Wonderful job. Because she doesn't come across as boring for even a millisecond, but she does come across as someone who is controlled and just a little bit fish out of water. Not quite used to things. She's trying, and she's making the effort, but she's just got a little bit of alien in her presentation, which is good, which is excellent. Um, this then leads to the, the first interesting bit of the episode. So, you know, she's a criminal. So T'Pol is very upset about this. And goes off, and Archer starts talking with her. They start talking about heroes. Vulcans don't have heroes. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure they don't. But there's this interesting bit where Archer says, we don't know what she's done, and her response is, it doesn't matter. Oh, 
boy, ain't that the truth. See, forgive me for being amazingly cynical, but not only have I been digesting fiction for most of my life, but I'm also a student of history. And I'm a victim of being falsely accused of crimes in my life. So, yeah. <laughs> when you can be accused of mm, being a traitor to your state, when your state is Nazi Germany, I mean, they are guilty of that crime, but I think this specific crime kind of matters. Right? And we can't just dismiss everything just because the government is corrupt or pathetic. Because if we did that, then we'd have to dismiss everyone because every government is corrupt to some extent or another, right? Let's keep this in fiction land. Let's imagine that there's, oh, I don't know, a defector from Romulan. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> as soon as I started thinking about it, I realized where I wanted to go with that. But yeah, let's assume him. The Admiral. Admiral Jarok, I believe it was. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of TNG, even to this day. And he is a criminal under Romulan law. He is actually guilty of treason and trying to sell secrets to their, well, to another nation, who aren't necessarily their enemies, but they weren't exactly on good terms. He is a criminal. Does that matter? This is why it needs to be more complex. Simply saying that you are accused of a crime or you are guilty of a crime is simply not sufficient. You need to know what you are guilty of. You need to know the circumstances surrounding it and the people of whom are claiming that guilt. We also need to know how exactly that guilt lines up with other things. I know, I know, we're supposed to respect sovereignty of other nations, and this is a topic Star Trek brings up now and again. But the truth is, there are limits to that, you know? Especially when it comes to a power that is, well, like the Romulan Star Empire, par exemple. So... I find it very fascinating that Archer is the one who is trying to talk around this, and it is T'Pol who takes the, well, the typical public view on this, right? The linear view. doesn't matter. She's a criminal. The mere fact that she would commit a crime without understanding any of the nuance of what that could mean. It's a, it's a fascinating topic, which then leads us forward into the Maserite. So the Maserite guy shows up, and he is, of course, super suspicious. Now, we do find out over the course of the episode that he is part of the mafia, let's call them what they are, with, with, within his government. They are gangsters who are extremely powerful by bribing and killing anyone in their way. Okay, I'm with it. Um, I find myself wondering how much factionalization is going on with their world. We find out later these, these people have reached out to the Vulcans for arbitration on this. Maybe arbitration is the wrong word, but help. Let's go with that word, help. The Maserites have actually officially, as in, in a governmental sense, said, please assist us with this. The Vulcans said yes. One of the things I've commented on, I think, I know I've commented on it in personal conversations, because I've been chatting with a few friends uh, and people on Discord who are also friends, I guess, um, about Enterprise while I've been going through this to help keep my brain active, because just doing Enterprise analyses over and over has been turning me into a jellyfish. And... As I, we were talking about it, one of the things I mentioned was that the Vulcans absolutely 100% practice interventionism. Yeah, I did talk about this because it came up in Shadows of Bajem. Um, this is another example of that. They are intervening in another nation's internal affairs for the sake of either intergalactic community or for themselves. Now, it's a little bit different because they were asked to. That is a key distinction. But again, that kind of boils down to who masked them. Who exactly is authorized to make such an official request? 
Is it the ratified government? Is there more than one ratified government? What happens if Pakistan reached out right now to the Vulcans, who are suddenly real, and... Oh, shoot, I just made the Vulcans. Anyways, let's imagine Pakistan just reached out to the Vulcans just now, right now, and said, we want your help dealing with something. doesn't even matter what. How do the Vulcans respond to that? Let's say they help them. Well, <laughs> you, you, I, I mean, do I even need to keep going? The, the problems just start erupting in this wonderful fractal pattern the moment the Vulcans decide to get involved in the government of one nation on one planet, which is planet-bound. Now, we do find out the Masorites, of course, have ships, and they have ships that can go very fast, which actually irritates the piss out of me, if I'm being completely honest. I, I'll talk about that in a second. But still... The Vulcans do actually get involved in another planet's affairs. Huh. Either way, they decide to show that they are the bad guys, they're the Mafia, by jamming their communications and then firing on their ship. They also mention they can't use phase cannons at warp, to which I say, Duh! You can't fire phasers at warp. Why? Well... In order to go faster than light, in order to go at warp, they need to project a warp bubble around them which distorts space to allow them to basically bypass physics. This is an immensely basic ex explanation, but it's important because that warp bubble and maintaining the bubble is something that's true even in this series and has been through basically all of Star Trek. That's actually the reason in lore for the twin nacelle design, although that was obviously something they came up after the fact to justify the aesthetics of it, but whatever. Warp bubble. So let's say you fire a phaser. That phaser is not traveling faster than light. So the moment it gets to the edge of that bubble, what do you think is going to happen? Point in fact, it's actually a lore point and a tech point several times that photon torpedoes can be fired at warp, specifically because they have the ability to continue moving at warp and they have the sensors and tech to scan and adjust at faster than light speeds. Within reason, the, the further they go and the longer it gets, the less likely that torpedo is to actually hit anything. But if you're firing at someone who is effectively chasing you at faster than light drive, then you can, in fact, shoot them with a torpedo because they do fight at faster than light. Someone should have probably mentioned that during Star Trek Into Darkness, but let's not go into that. <clears throat> so... But no, the reason Reed gives is, oh, I have to techno-babble my way around it, which just irritates me. This then leads to Archer confronting her. She is weirdly honest here. This is probably the best example of a scene that I think was changed, or rather not changed, but her performance was changed. She is affable, polite, and firm. She is very honest with him. I have no answers for you. I am not going to tell you this. I am not going to explain this to you. This is a need-to-know basis, and this is something that I am keeping to myself. But she is not a dick about it, you know? Which, if you just read the, the lines on the page, so to speak, you can see how that could be portrayed in the typical Vulcan fashion. Uh, that is to say, Enterprise Vulcans, you know what I mean. So Archer comes up with an interesting point. He says, this is not worthwhile. I don't agree. But that's not really quite the point, is it? See, in my opinion, if a Vulcan ambassador who tells you that they're on a top-secret mission tells you that they need to make this mission happen, and they are under a need to know, 
That's all I need to know. That is my ally. My only ally out here. And I am going to try and do my best as captain of my ship to represent my people in defending and working along uh, in the, the, the interests of my ally. Funnily enough, towards the end of the episode, it's literally a down-to-the-minute thing to make this happen. If they had just kept going the whole time, that might have not even been a thing. But no, Archer had to be a dick about this for reasons we'll get to in just a minute. And thus, we have the dilemma of the episode. So, thanks for that, Archer. Once again, you are not a good captain. Oh, I know. He says, oh, it's not enough to risk my ship. But the problem is, he does know enough to risk his ship and his crew. I just told you enough for him to risk his ship and his crew. If he believes for a millisecond that she's actively lying, then sure. But nowhere does he seem to indicate that. And in fact, neither do I think she is lying. She is clearly playing this straight. I'm on a top-secret mission. Please help me out. The end. This is one I have a note here, and I say I really like Valar a lot. Again, a lot of that is based on Miss Flanagan's performance. Um, quick side note. <laughs> so I had to do these way in advance, right? Um, obviously, I have to. It's, it's the nature of my job. But as a consequence, I have done episodes and recorded episodes and then found out after the fact that some of the actors I've talked about have passed away, because I, that's because that's where we're at. Because historically speaking, we're in a decade where a lot of the people are just starting to die of old age, and that sucks, and it's awful. So I looked up her, and for just a moment my heart seized because I saw the, the death at, uh, I think it was 2017, and I was like, oh no, no, that was actually her husband. I, I know, that's still terrible. I don't want to sound like it's not horrible. But there's just that moment of, oh, thank God, we didn't lose another one. In fact, she's still semi-active in acting. And I bet she's still damned good at it. I really hope she's still alive when this episode is goes live. Because that's just kind of where we're at now, isn't it? Not exactly pleasant thoughts. And we just kind of keep losing people. Again, I, I know, it's natural. It's life. She does an absolutely phenomenal job of Valar in this episode. She portrays someone who is affable and polite and diplomatic and firm and biased. Speciest, actually. She does. She is biased against humans. No, really. And she has her pride. And she has the, the, all of the weight, you would assume, of being a dignitary. And she portrays a dignitary, a patriot, and a Vulcan who is still diplomatic and polite. Do you know how hard that is to manage all that? <laughs> Again, I think Mark Leonard could manage that. Sarek. I said Mark Leonard earlier, didn't I? I hope so. I, I screw up names sometimes. And people in the comments section like to remind me of that. And that's just all the comments I get for that episode is when I screw up a name. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, she she manages this balance brilliantly. There's this bit when uh, T'Pol, you know, mentions, you know, I, maybe you should be considering taking making friends with the captain. I trust him, and perhaps so should you. And her response is to get the Vulcan equivalent of angry. You dare question me. I have done a great deal in my service to... And then T'Pol immediately apologizes, and then she immediately pulls back, and no, you're right, of course you didn't mean any offense. How could you? 
Like, I, I'm not even coming even close to how well she portrays this. I don't know if I can portray a Vulcan. That is a hard job to do. I've, I, I have. I have actually voiced uh, a, a Vulcan character over in the FF9 Theater, which I hope to God has gone live by the time this video goes live. Um, but yeah, she she just nails this, and she apologizes, and this then leads to Archer. Now, Archer is really digging his heels in on this one. Uh, really, really, really. This is part of why I mentioned that Archer is uh, wrong. The other reason. Because, based on presentation, it becomes very clear that Archer, and this is just my interpretation, Archer is not actually doing this because he feels they don't have good enough reason. He just wants the Vulcans to frickin' open up to him for once. Remember what he said earlier? He was talking to Forrest. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna be surprised by this one, John. The our Vulcans aren't talking. And Archer's just like, oh, of course they're not. They never tell us anything. Two scenes were devoted to that motif, that theme, that idea of how the Vulcans just won't open up to them. And it feels like Archer is just digging his heels in because he's sick of it and he wants them to open up to him. Now, this is the wrong time to do that. And he is jeopardizing his crew and his cargo, uh, well, you know what I mean, his mission, in the act of doing so. Because people ain't cargo, mate. But that is what he's doing and why he's doing it. You'll notice that he continues to, to dig his heels in until T'Pol reaches out to him personally. Not professionally, not as a Vulcan. I am making this request. Please. And you'll notice, and this is the first time literally in the whole show I've seen Bakula do some decent acting, because what we see is him going, Okay, yeah, no, I'm, I'm pushing this too far. I'm being too stubborn. I'll let this one go. Let's go and help. I, I lied. There's one other time. It's when he uh, was willing to call the Vulcans for help. He didn't even he didn't even do that vocally. I don't remember what episode that was. It was several episodes ago. So it's, this is the second time I've seen him do good acting here. So, the ship starts to have issues as it crawls its way up to warp five, and Archer says, "You know, can we talk?" So she pulls him. Actually, I think she initiates it. She says, "She starts talking to him." This is when we see that she really is was specious against humans just like he is specious was specious against vulcans but what i love about it is the way it's portrayed because when called on it she said you just got out of a world war you just you did some horrible terrible things to each other and nearly destroyed your own species of course i was biased against you she doesn't say it that way but that is what she is meaning then he mentions, oh, what about the century of good behavior after? And she has no answer for that. That's why she's specious. That is the admission by her that she is wrong for having thought this way. Because she had good reason to initially think humans are bad. Because all she knew was the distant picture. If you looked at human society right now, at the broadest possible sense, zooming the camera all the way out until you can encapsulate all of human society into one little ball. And you looked at that and you had to make a judgment call based on that. Let's be honest, you'd probably be like, ugh, no. But the reason she is still specious, and this is something she's now working through, is because she had dinosaur mentality. I'm going to explain that really quick because I don't even think that's a lorium because I don't bring it up that often. Dinosaur mentality, it's a it's a strategy. It's when you just kind of plow forward regardless of how anything else changes around you. It's a form of extreme traditionalism. It's 
well, I decided to do this, so I'm going to keep doing this, but the situation has changed. No, it hasn't. We're just going to keep doing this. Because that's exactly what she does. She insists that humans are still a problem, and she insists on not trusting them, and she insists on not actually accepting them. She'll be polite. She'll be diplomatic. But that's it. So, this is her admitting that and trying to get over that which is something Archer has been trying to do the whole season, to try and accept the Vulcans more. And frankly, if Archer didn't have to Paul, he'd probably be nowhere near as, pro as far on that progress as he is. So, then we have the Warp 5 scene. <sighs> I was thinking about this scene and how much it bothers me, because the problem is the alien ships have really no real problem keeping up. And that's the problem. It kind of invalidates the it because hey here's another enemy of the week that's stronger than us great great that's exactly what star trek needs more of and that's the main reason it bugs me it would be relatively easy to restructure but it would require a little bit of a hand wave because what i would do is make it so that they can't quite keep up but what they can do is they have warp torpedoes torpedoes that can actually go through warp and can briefly accelerate to substantially higher warp speeds to hit their target, say, warp 7. And the gap between warp 5 and warp 7 is gargantuan. So, in short, they can close the distance in the seconds that torpedo has before its targeting computer gets completely overwhelmed by the ridiculous amount of data being dumped on it as it's flying around at warp 7. So, they fire the torpedoes, and those torpedoes are still hitting them, and that's why they keep trying to go all the way up to warp 5, to get a little bit more distance and to get to the, the rendezvous quickly enough to be able to withstand this. This is also important because at the end of the episode, it's all about a race against time. They need to, to get to the Vulcan ship. Now, normally I'd be upset about that, because ticking clocks, especially in Star Trek, tend to be badly constructed. I'm okay with it here for a reason I'll get to later. Either way, despite the fact that it irritates me that they can just keep up, I like the crawl up to Warp 5. Because, well, because it's actually continuity. Because it actually lines up with how that should work. Uthor, if you're watching this, I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Because I don't just bang on about continuity because I like it. I don't just try to talk about investment and keeping things contiguous with regards to speed and geology and tech. Those things do matter to me, obviously, but... Here, it it would have been easy for there to be a threat of the week because quantum. Instead, what we have is a moment that has impact specifically because it follows through the already established rules of the setting. We know what it means to crawl up from warp 4.9 to warp 5. And not just because the ship's shaking and because things are catching on fire, because warp is this kind of scale. I think it's logarithmic. I always screw up the term. So every point up you're doing is more severe of a climb than the previous point. So it might sound like warp 4.9 to warp 5, or indeed warp 4.5 to warp 5, is not a big jump. But it is. It's a huge jump. I don't know the math off the top of my head, but it could be a bigger jump than warp 4 to warp 3 or to warp 2. So it makes so much sense that this is a big deal in a big moment, ignoring the fact that it's also a historic moment, that the Warp 5 engine actually manages it. So we've got that going for it. This is also, by the way, one of the reasons I like the low-tech thing. 
Uh, obviously, this could still apply with warp 9 point whatever if you wanted to go that route with it, but keeping it down a little bit helps to, go to ground it and help with that low-tech tone I've mentioned several times. So then we get to the end, and it's like, okay, they're, they're, they're buying time at this point. They just need to wait for their ally to show up. Ticking clock, like I said. So... I, one of the first things that occurred to me is I would have stalled for time by immediately dropping out of warp. You're probably thinking, what? why? Well, think about this for a second. Uh, obviously, this is not what we're shown because this show is stupid. But <laughs> what happens in the show is they drop out of warp, and then several seconds later, the others drop out of warp right behind them. Uh, no. No, what actually happened in reality land over here is we dropped out of warp, and then they kept going for a second or two, and then had to stop, turn around, and come to warp back. Not a big difference, but when you're playing for minutes, that can actually make the difference. I would have just dropped out of warp, let them fly right overhead. Let them go to plaid. So, <clears throat> for the first time, um, possibly in the entire show, Archer has a good idea. She's like, here, I need you to trust me. She's like, okay. So she goes down. The gangsters show up, fake civility, as usual. Then they gun down a helpless woman, because they're mafia. And then the Vulcan ship shows up. It starts beating the ever-living crap out of the Mazarites. This is so many levels of interesting to me. First of all, there's no actual diplomatic possible incident here because those are not official Mazarite ships. Those are mafia ships. So they don't actually get to claim that the Vulcans are attacking the Mazarite nation. So that's fine. But what they do get to claim is they are defending their ally. This is why I like the ticking clock, because this is the theme of the entire episode. Allies, and how to treat them. Vlar was correct. Vlar was correct initially in being hesitant about the humans. And the humans are correct in initially being hesitant about the Vulcans. But what both kind of realized, thanks to both Vlar and Archer in this particular episode is that you need to kind of move past that point. You need to become more than just, you know, we happen to be allies. Because there is tremendous value, practical, tangible value, never mind the intangible concepts of society and coordination and IDIC, but there is actual tangible value in having an ally. And remember, we're it. The humans and the Vulcans are basically the only major alliance in this entire uh, quadrant, possibly. Never mind within the sectors around Seoul. And that's a huge deal. And that is so impacting on galactic society and will lead to the formation of the Federation eventually. Because two races allied. And we see practical application of that alliance. The Vulcan ship shows up and says, hey, you need help? Y yes. The Vulcan says, you're going to, to, to put down your weapons or we're going to destroy your ships. That's the value of an alliance. There's so I, I just I'm sorry I want to keep expounding on this but I'd just be repeating myself you know like you're this tiny little nation and and, and there's this big old nation and big old nation's like I'm gonna attack you and you're like well yeah but I got five other little nations around me who are all allied with me oh they might not attack at all and if they do you've got a lot of friends you can call on who are far more maneuverable and have far more uh, troops than you by yourself have to help deal with that alliances. At every level, at the national level, at the corporate level, at the regional level, at the personal level, are so critical 
to so many aspects of society and civilization. It's nice to see what, in my opinion, is the very first step, or arguably the second step, in Vulcan-human relations, right here in this episode. And that's probably the final reason why I really like this one, is because thematically, this is, this is core Star Trek for me. You know? The first step would be Cochrane, back in First Contact, if you're wondering. So, they have a bit of mutual respect. She's still awkward about the handshakes, but amiable. And we hear, for the very first time on Enterprise, live long and prosper. I really liked this one a lot. This was a great episode, and it's awesome to finally have a truly great episode to enjoy like this. This is right up there with Shuttlepod 1 for me. I've been keeping track of the, the top and the bottom, just for the heck of it, just so I don't lose track this time around. Uh, it's kind of a small list, <laughs> but here we are. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. Next time, we're totally going to go to Ryza. I think we've got another episode before we get to Ryza. I'm not sure, but either way, I'll see you next time. Choo-choo.